Those of you who are with us tonight, we're going to be looking at some questions from the New Testament and some things that we might be able to learn to do better. I'm going to be careful and not complain about the weather. Sometimes, there, there, I will have to admit, there are some weathers that we enjoy more than others. Let's just put it that way. But uh, it, it's good to be together. It's good to, for us to assemble tonight. Last week, we spent our time thinking about some of the purposes of the Christian assembly. You know, why are you here, was the question I asked. And, and we didn't stop to answer that from individuals, but we tried to look at some reasons from the Scripture that might show you why we gather in an assembly such as this. And I want to just take a few moments here at the beginning and just go through some things that we talked about last week and just refresh our minds about them. And then we're going to talk about some misunderstandings that are seen throughout the world today and seen throughout our nation at least. And when we think about what we need to be doing, when we think about what God has organized and planned for us, if you remember in the very first one we talked about God in the very beginning, before the creation of the world, planned all these things about His kingdom, and about his way. He worked out the scheme of redemption long before man was created. He gave us the power of choice knowing that sometimes we're going to choose to do the wrong thing as all of us have. But why? When he's given us the opportunity of redemption, when he's given us the opportunity of worshiping him in a way that's pleasing to him, why do we ask ourselves, why are you here? Why do we have to pause for a moment? And every one of us, myself included, have to stop every once in a while and really pause and, and, and meditate on why am I here? I don't know about you. I've got a pretty good idea. You, like me, well, sometime while we're sitting in the worship assembly, we'll find our minds drifting away for something else. Not really meditating, not really thinking about why we're there. First thing we mentioned was we're there for to praise and glorify God. That's our basic purpose in coming together in an assembly such as this. We used Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 21, to God be the glory in the church. Now he used the term in the church in a way that we can understand. He's not talking about the, 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 the church in Buford, he's talking about the church in the world. He's talking about all of us, wherever we might be, whenever we might meet, meet on the Lord's day, good. That's what we're supposed to do. Can we meet on, uh, have an assembly like that on other occasions? Certainly, like Wednesday night, certainly what we're doing at this present time. If I read the book of Acts in the early part of it right, many of those New Testament Christians met every day. 
it was so important to them. Now, they didn't have a, a building like we have to meet in. They didn't have something that, some specific locale for them to gather. Many times it was in others' homes. Now, picture something, if you will. That first Lord's Day, 3,000 people were baptized into Christ. These were people from about 15 different nations that had come to Jerusalem to worship on the Pentecost. And here we find them. You know, really, really it, was, uh, it wasn't the Pentecost, it was the uh, first, uh, resur- after the first resurrection of Jesus, which was uh, on uh, uh, a, a different day from that, but you see what I'm talking about. They came together, 3,000 of them. Where could they meet? They didn't have a building to meet in. There wasn't a facility that would uh, have beautiful pews like this and uh, air-conditioned or heating uh, uh, building, comfortable and, and clean and all of that. They didn't have that. I can imagine they divided up into smaller groups, went to people's homes and went to wherever they could find an assembly. And we saw that particular idea, and we discussed some of the other passages briefly about that. But just to remind you, we're discussing this because I want us to identify the fact that we're here to glorify God. That reflects the very nature of God. That's why we're here. That's the purpose of our meeting together and assembling like this. And then there it is to exemplify the church. Again, we noted in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 18, Paul says, when you come together as a church, literally he used the word assembly. When you come together in an assembly, obviously there are times when we come together for other purposes. But we come together to exemplify the church. When we come together as the church, we actually assemble. We actually are the assembly of God in Christ. We noted Paul's teaching to all the churches. Several times, Paul in his writings would talk about the things that he taught in all the churches, wherever he was. Certainly, an agreement in faith and practice would be something to have a common identity in all the churches. Something that would exemplify, set the pattern, set out exactly what we might expect to find in the churches in an assembly of that that idea, an agreement that is expressed in our coming together as the church. Now, please keep in mind as we're talking about this, Our culture today has made that word church mean something different than what it meant in the New Testament. It's not a building. It's not a temple. It's a people. You and I compose the church. Along with all the others that have obeyed the gospel world over. And we need to recognize that as we assemble together for the 
glory and glory and praise of God. We're doing so to honor Him in every way, and then too we're to edify one another. We're part of the family of God. I don't know how we can stress this strongly enough. Paul in in First Corinthians chapter fourteen says that we come together for edification. What does he mean? He means that we come together to strengthen, build each other up in the, in, in the faith, to help one another through our difficulties we're having in this life. Some may be uh, having difficulties. Some may be ha- having a, a great uh, amount of joy and happiness in this life. We can share that with each other and, and build them up and make them stronger. That's what we need to be doing as we assemble together. And certainly an agreement in faith and practice have a common identity to the churches. An agreement that is, that is expressed in our coming together as the church. You know, that's uh, the emotion, the, the emphasis is not on emotionalism. It's not on personal satisfaction. We're to strengthen one another. We're here for each other. Sometimes we forget that, don't we? Meeting together shows that unity of the body of Christ. That unity that we're going to be talking about, it expresses that unity. There needs to be that concern for unity, agreement. Being one, as a family, we want each other to be as one. All of us together. Now, when you think about that, they, that coming together is a time for us to glorify and praise God. It's a time for us to set the example, to exemplify the church. It's a time for us to build one another us, uh, up. And it's a time for us to work on that unity together, a oneness of the body of Christ. It's also a time for us to express fellowship. We're fellow heirs of God. Fellow heirs of the promise of God. Have you thought about that? Have you really pondered that situation as far as you're concerned? Realizing you are an heir of God? We know Jesus Christ was. Well, he's, he's the Son of God, as he was referred to. He's the Son of God. The Son is the heir, is he not? But if we read the New Testament right, we find that we, as we are baptized into Jesus Christ, put on Christ. What he is is what we are. If he's an heir, we're an heir. The heir of God. Something that is waiting for us to, in eternity, to give us the inheritance. You remember he promised the apostles in John chapter 14 that he was going to go to prepare a place for them. And if I go and prepare a place for you, he said, I'll come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What a privilege. We often don't think of that. We think of the time we have left here. We think of our lifetime as it passes by so quickly. 
as we get older and look back on it, it went in a big hurry. Maybe while we were dealing with some of the problems we had in life, it didn't go quite so rapidly. But looking backward, time flies. We also recognize that we have fellowship, and that, and that fellowship one with another is so important. It puts a premium on reconciliation. We become like one another, fellow heirs of the kingdom of God. The community dimension of being a church requires us to work diligently on personal relationships so that we might bring harmony and mutual concerns in all of our meetings. That's the way God wants it. And then, too, as we have the opportunity, we might be able to impress outsiders. Paul used the special gifts of the Spirit that no longer exist, but did when Paul was there. And he wrote these words that they indicate that we're to be aware of those who may be visiting, whether they have not obeyed the gospel or not. I don't know whether you remember or not, but in the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul was talking about some of the Spirit. Uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit, especially speaking in tongues. And he said, if you're speaking in tongues and you don't have anyone to interpret, and allow me to paraphrase what he's saying, you're speaking in a language that nobody can understand. What good's that going to do anybody? If they cannot hear what you say, if they cannot understand, if they cannot grasp what you say. He said, I've, speak, I've spoken in, in tongues more than anyone else, and yet I'd rather speak five words by understanding than 10,000 words otherwise. It's important that we get across that message. The impression on outsiders is, to, is a function for the reason of our coming together. And then, too, we noticed lastly last week about the, the idea of, uh, well, it didn't want to stay there, did it? The idea of commemorating or proclaiming salvation. Why do we issue the invitation every service? Why do we spend some time in, in doing that you know, when we observe the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming uh, uh, the Christ-saving act. I don't know about you, but it sends chills up my spine almost every Lord's Day. As I think about what Jesus went through for me. What He made possible for me through His suffering who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Not that the cross was joy. Not that the punishment and, and physical pain that he endured was joy. No, that wasn't it. The joy is what he brought to us. The joy was what he could do for us, make available to us the reconciliation that we have in Christ Jesus. You see, this remembering and reaffirming our salvation contributes to the accomplishing the purpose of the assembly. We need to recognize that. 
when we declare what God's done for us in Christ, that's one way to glorify God. To let God know that we appreciate and understand and, and are thankful for what He's done for us. It shows what the church is, a, a people called together by the gospel who, who exists to proclaim God's mighty deed. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, it tells us that believers were to be built up in the most holy faith. And it unites them when you do. It strengthens their fellowship. And it calls outsiders to the faith. That's what we've been doing. That's, that, that's what the church is all about. That's the purposes of our meeting together. But what about understanding, misunderstandings? What about the often misunderstandings of the assembly? Most misunderstandings contain, contain a partial truth. We understand that. Something that completely erroneous would be too easy, easily detected. Most errors have an element of truth in them. That makes them more plausible, makes them more easy to, to accept. The result is that they're often accepted unconsciously. And these misunderstandings of worship contain some partial truth. If the purposes of the assembly are as we just set forth in the review that we did just a moment ago, and we should be very careful that we fulfill those purposes as we gather in that assembly for worship. Now I want to spend just a few moments tonight looking at the reverse side of what we studied a few moments ago and last week. Now I prefer to emphasize the positive. I'd much rather do that. And even thinking about these misunderstandings, I also want to include that positive twist. Some would tell you that that, that last week, that, let's get on over here. Some would tell you that this is the only time of worship. Is it? We meet at nine, Bible study, ten for worship. Six on Sunday night, seven on Wednesday night. Is that the only time? No. We can see a lot of congregations that meet at various times. Doesn't mean they're doing anything wrong. It's not that. That's not the purpose of what we're talking about. Now, common religious speech equates what takes place in the assembly at certain hours. We come together on the Lord's Day to take the Lord's Supper, but we come also for the hearing of a message to, to strengthen our faith and to encourage and build us up and help us in every way that's possible. Now, I want to speak instead of the assembly language that is in more keeping with New Testament terminology our common speech. You see, that presents a narrowing down of New Testament language of worship. 
The New Testament uses the words for worship in a broader sense, and we typically use them today. We, on the other hand, use the word uh, worship in a more limited way to apply to, uh, to one or only one occasion in the New Testament uh, it considers worship. Words for religion and, and worship in the New Testament are applied to a wide range of activities. For example, James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religious. Religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. Visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction. Keep oneself unspotted from the world. When we think about religion, so often today in our time, in our, uh, our culture, religion is what kind of building do you go into and what, when do you go into that building? No. Religion's a practice of life. Not just what happens on Sunday morning, not just what happens on Sunday night and Wednesday night, but what happens with your life day by day. Now, I'm not saying that there's, a, there, there's something else that takes the place of, of our worship, no. What an example of outward religion, James tells us. Visit the fatherless and the widows and their affliction and keep yourself unspotted from the world. That's a daily activity. Again, in Paul in Romans 12 and verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, or as one translation puts it, your spiritual worship. What are you saying, Paul? You make your body a living temple of God. You surrender your body to do what God says do. It's interesting. New Testament, in the New Testament, everything one does is service to God. Indeed, all of our lives. Seven days a week, 365 days a year. Every day of our lives should be dedicated and viewed as worship to God, glorifying Him, honoring Him, praising Him. Now keep in mind that worship does occur in the assembly. No question about that. The congregational meetings are an important part of life and worship and sacrifice and service to God. In the assembly of the church, we show our devotion to Him and express praise and glory to Him. Remember Ephesians 3 and verse 21 that describes glory to God in the church? Paul in chapter, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2 says, To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Jesus Christ our Lord, called to be saints with all who in every place Call, one, call the name of Jesus Christ both theirs and ours. Paul is telling the church in Corinth, look, I'm not just talking to you. This is what I preach everywhere I go. 
I've said this, I've taught this, he says over and over again in every church. In Malachi chapter 1 and verse 11, Malachi says, In every place incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations. Now he's talking about when Christ comes. He's prophesying what's going to happen in the future. But did you notice that he said, in every place? You and I could use a different term there. We could say everywhere. Everywhere. God's name should be glorified. That's, that, that's in every sanctuary. That's in every place of worship. That's in every incense that, and, and sacrifice that were given to God. This, the passage was understood as a spiritual sacrifice applied to worship that the nations and the Gentiles would offer because they gave it to God through Christ. Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2 that Christians are joined with many other Christians around the world for in every church worship was given to the Lord Jesus Christ by confessing His name. Participation in the assembly is important. It's an important part of the Christian life. Worship to God and Christ occurs there. Misunderstandings come in failing to recognize the worshipful nature of other activities outside the assembly as well. Accepting whatever Christians may do. This is the reverse of just what we, just what we talked about. This is the reverse of that. The limiting of the word worship to the assemblies of the church represents a, a correct instinct. That is, there is something special about the assembly. Many have tried to, by this word usage, to express the idea there's something distinctive about me, the, the meeting, uh, meetings of the church, and, and that attitude's proper. The mistake comes in choosing the word that the New Testament uses more broadly and using it in a very narrow sense. When people recognize that the distinction between worship in the church and meeting outside the church, that it's artificial, then they want to do the rest, a reverse. Instead of ta taking worship outside, they want to make the world uh, to worship in the church. Instead of taking the idea of praising God and glorifying God, throughout our lives, every day, outside of the assembly, they want to bring it in and just make it just in the assembly. They make opposite. The very one that uh, made by those who restrict the language into a few devotional activities. The attitude of many is, is nothing different or special that this attitude reflects in the general characteristics of our society. We can look round about us and see that. I, I read by one writer copying a letter to Ann Landers that provides a good illustration. In response to a matter, to a restaurant's maitre d', who said that if people enjoy dining, it doesn't matter how they're dressed. Ann Landers said he was wrong. 
people, she said, who are sloppily dressed, cheap in the look of a good restaurant. How a person dresses expresses the importance he or she attaches to the event and or the establishment. And she concluded by saying that she would rather not spend her money to eat with people who dress like slobs. Well, maybe so. What is she saying, though? She later identifies the simple fact that how a person dresses expresses the importance that they attach to the event or to the established. Maybe that's something we ought to think about as far as our church worship is concerned. Maybe that many other factors must be taken into, uh, into account, I'm sure. But I'll leave that with you to consider in the relation to the, to the distinctiveness and importance that we attach to the church. The distinctiveness of the church's regular meetings is shown by Paul's regulations in 1 Corinthians 1. I find it particularly striking to note the distinction he makes to, by what is done in church and what may be done at home. At least three times in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 through 14, Paul distinguishes a church activity from a home activity. Two different things. One of Paul's distinctions is between the Lord's Supper and other meals. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 20, 20 says, Therefore when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. It should be so. So there were meetings in order to take the Lord's Supper and meetings where you did not take the Lord's Supper. But because of the abuses in the Corinthian church, the meal that they were calling the Lord's Supper was not lordly at all. There was feasting. There was drunkenness, verse 21. So Paul exclaims, What, do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church or the assembly of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Verse 22. Paul concludes the discussion by making the distinction again. And when you come together in order to eat, wait for one another. If you're hungry, eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. Verses 33 and 34. In translating into English, we have to say in church and at home. But in the Greek, the contrast is even more obvious, being expressed by the same preposition, in church and in house. Some have mistakenly read church as a church building, as we often do, Included that, and concluded that we couldn't eat in church building. You ever heard that? Can't have a kitchen in a church building. You know, for the preparation of food. The word church here says nothing about the place where the activity takes place. They didn't have a building. I don't know where the Corinthian church met. Most likely in some other homes. Probably the church was meeting in a private home, perhaps of a wealthy member. So the same spatial location could be met by in church and at home. That may be the very reason some of the problems are occurring. The practice of Christians in meeting in home may have been the occasion for disorders as far as attire is concerned, may have been the uh, di uh, disorder as far as eating is concerned, place of eating, 
people acted as they did at other times at home or in the assembly. It was all, hence it's all more important for Paul to make the distinction between church and home activity. Different rules apply. When we're talking about the church meeting, it might be the same in a private house, the same activity of taking a food, but social customs of at-home activity did not carry over to the at-church activity. There's a valid distinction to be made between the Lord's Supper and ordinary meal. There's a valid distinction between what is done in church or in the assembly and what may be done at other places at other times. Eating the Lord's Supper and eating another kind of meal represents two different kinds of social occasions. Paul makes a similar distinction between a private religious exercise and the public assemblies of the church. The subject was uh, now was uh, speaking in tongues. For this would come to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Paul lays down his basic premise in verse 2. He says, For those who speak in a tongue do not speak to other people, but to God. And according to verse 5, he wants all to speak in tongues, but he prefers that all would prophesy, because unless there's an interpreter, the tongue speaker, for the tongue speaker, the only, only the prophet is the one that's heard, the one that's able to edify the church, strengthen it, and build it up. His own practice is, is expressed in verses 18 and 19. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. Nevertheless, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others also than 10,000, as I mentioned a moment ago, in a tongue. There's our phrase, in church again, in assembly. Finally, Paul lays down specific regulations, verse 27 and 28. If anyone speaks with it in, in a tongue, let there be only two or three at the most, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let them be silent in the church and speak to themselves and to God. Speaking in tongues was a private religious language. The church, in church, however, the speech must be intelligible, edifying, must be a communication to the people that are present, and something allowed, even encouraged outside the church, is strictly regulated in the absence of a translator in the church building. Third, the use of different activities inside the assembly and activities outside the assembly has to do with speech. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34 said, Women should be silent in the churches. If there's anything to desire, they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Verse 35. Now, I'm going to discuss women's role a little in a lesson later on. And so I don't plan on dealing with much with that at this particular moment. Just, again, just to note the distinction between in church and in the house. 
She's not to speak in church, but she's to ask her husband at home. Two different things. Speaking in two different occasions. Something that is forbidden in the assembly is commanded or at least allowed in another setting. Now there are times when the whole church comes together. 1 Corinthians 14, 23. No quibble is to be made concerning what everyone, whether everyone's actually present. Not necessarily taking roles, but that, that's the intention. On those occasions, certain things are to be done and to be done in certain ways. There may be other occasions when a group of Christians is together for some other purpose. It's simply the fact that those present are all are mostly Christians does not make the affair a meeting or activity of the church. The intention to be an assembly of the church. The purposes of the assembly provide a criteria that has set certain activities in the assembly and we learn what they, they are from the New Testament. These activities will accomplish the purposes. Other activities, if other, otherwise approved by God, are to be done outside the assembly. Thirdly, someone has said, well, it, it's only outward actions we, that I can really worship God, you know. We must emphasize that what is done in the assembly must be done from the heart. And not just go through the motions, as all of us do from time to time. There are times when we come to take communion and then slip out afterwards as if we've checked that off of our to-do list and we're free. Jesus put emphasis on, the, uh, on worship to the Father in John chapter 4, 23 and 24. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father seeks such to worship Him. God is spirit. And they that worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. What are you saying in spirit and truth, Jesus? We're putting our effort, our, in, our intent, our purpose behind that worship. The meditation, the thoughts that we're putting there must be there. Consequently, Renewal and worship will not come through some new or different styles or techniques, but in the hearts of the worshipers. Some have said, well, you know, religious, uh, religion is a, a, a private experience. They want to avoid some kind of external or mechanical interpretation of activities in the assembly and may swing to the opposite viewpoint in, in thinking about that and and, and depend instead on private meditation or individual devotion. This under, uh, misunderstanding that privatized individual worship uses, uh, it usually leads to some kind of an excuse. You may have heard it said, I can worship God better out at the lake than I can in the church. And if worship is defined only by terms of meditation or spiritual feelings, then that statement may be true, but such definition leaves out so many other factors and aside, and of course uh, uh, completely misunderstands the very nature of the assembly. 
we should meditate and focus on spiritual matters during the assembly. Our assembly should properly be richer. Spiritual experiences, if all members spent more time in their private prayer, devotional Bible reading, and meditation. But corporate worship is different from private worship. Even if some of the same things are done, the very idea of the assembly is corporate experience. Being together, being concerned for one another. Notice what Hebrews chapter 10 and beginning of verse 24 says. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Well, how are we to do it? Let's, let, how, we're going to consider one another stirring up love and good works. But how does that take place? Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as, the manner, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. A lot of questions about that word day. What's he talking about? Is he talking about the day when the Lord's going to return? Is he talking about the day of assembly? I consider him talking about the day of assembly. I hope that's right. Either way you go at it, the whole purpose of this is to encourage one another, build one another up. You, you stir them up to love and good works. How? By not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. You see, I may worship God while alone at the lake, but there are some things I cannot do there. I cannot share the experiences with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I cannot weep with them and rejoice with them, comforting them and being comforted by them, exhorted and being exhorted by them. I need those things. You need those things. And we need to be able to do that for others as well. Well, they're, 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 you know, we hear so many say, well, it just makes me feel good. Now, let me ask you a question. There are a great number of people who look for emotional stimulation from these corporate assemblies that we're talking about. That this being pumped up emotionally is identified with spiritual well-being and but when one comes to church looking for that, for what, what's going to make him feel good, and this doesn't happen, quite often we hear remarks like, I didn't get out of anything out of church this morning, so don't think I'll come back tonight. The problem here is putting the emphasis on me, not on God, not on my fellow believers. There's a great deal of emphasis on meeting my needs but today, but do we know that what our real spiritual needs are? Before we've been confronted with the living God and heard His revelation to us, is there any way we can know what the spiritual needs are? We need to hear from God first what our real needs are. Instead of letting our perceptions of what our needs are and determine that what we'll do in our assemblies are in our worship. Praise has become kind of a code word today 
for emotional excitement. And so a certain kind of song is being described as a praise song with the implication that the church had not been singing praise songs until these new songs were written. Now there are many excellent new songs. Don't misunderstand me. Excellent new songs that are being written now. So don't think that I'm making a blanket indictment. The problem that I'm pointing out is the exclusive identification of a certain type of emotional singing with praise for God when its main effect is to stimulate the worshipers. Even praise songs often put the emphasis on me praising. Not, God, not on God, not on what He's done. The songs comfort my personal faith and, and, and take about what I, uh, talk about what I feel or what I do. Many persons talk about felt meanings, referring to what I feel. Is that what worship's all about? Not according to the New Testament. Worship is not group therapy although I would affirm to you that it does have some therapeutic value. I want you to understand, we have a responsibility when we come into the building in an assembly to worship God. That, uh, that um, responsibility is individual. It's for us. We share it with others as we speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. We do it as we share one, with one another our, our, our needs, our wants, our feelings, our hurts, our celebrations, the good things that happen as well as the bad. We want to share with others. We want to build them up and they us. That's what the church is all about. Worship God. Feel the fellowship that we can have with one another and do so according to the teachings of the New Testament. Not according to what I think. Not according to what I feel. Not according to what the culture in which we live thinks. But according to what the New Testament says. Bow with me for a moment. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you've given us the New Testament. You've told us how you want us to worship and serve you. We pray, Father, that we need guidance. and We need your help. We need your blessings to be with us more and more every day. Help us do just that. Help us make the assemblies of the church one in unity, in fellowship, and in strengthening one another and stirring one another up. Guide us in that, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.